going to uh, have a special children's program that begins this morning, and then it's going to pick back up tomorrow night, Tuesday, Wednesday. So this is all kids up through the fifth grade, kiddos up through the fifth grade. You can head on out uh, with our family and team, and they're going to have a special program for you, so you can head on out there. Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Titus, chapter number 2. The book of Titus, chapter 2. We are looking forward to our time with the teenagers this afternoon as well. Uh, we have some closing announcements that we'll talk about, but teens, just so you know, I'm really excited about the time that, I'm, that we're going to get with you guys. Uh, we're going to be in Titus, chapter 2, this morning. Titus is one of three letters written by Paul that we call... Uh, we call these the, uh, the uh, pastoral epistles. Paul wrote two of them to the same man, Timothy, uh, First and Second Timothy. But then he wrote this letter to a pastor named Titus. Let me give you a little bit of background. Titus was a pastor on, in a unique place. He was past, a pastor on the island of Crete. Now, Crete had a horrible reputation. Crete was known for its idolatry, it was known for its immorality, it was known for its violence. The men of Crete were, were warriors, but they were mercenary fighters. They didn't fight for a cause, they fought for money. And so they were all full of themselves, they would go out on their exploits, coming back, telling tall tales. Matter of fact, they were known, listen to this, they were known as a bunch of liars. Um, I mean, Paul says so in chapter number one, quoting really one of their own philosophers, he says, he says, you know what's said of the men of, of Crete, that they're a bunch of liars. And he comes behind it and says, it's, it's a true statement. I mean, wouldn't, that, wouldn't it be something if that was just the reputation of the men in your area? Bunch of liars. I mean, that's really, that was the reputation they had. So this was a, a place that had a horrible reputation. Really a horrible place. Immorality and idolatry, violence, lying. I mean, that's just their reputation. Isn't it just like God and his great grace that we've been singing about to send the good news of the gospel to a place like Crete? Aren't you glad that, that, that God sent the good news of the gospel to where you were? To pull you out of the miry pit and set your feet on a rock? Um, folks, this is who our God is. He's full of mercy and grace. There's a church here. It's a growing church. Man, I mean, one of, the, one of the assignments that's given to Titus by Paul is to appoint elders throughout the villages, it says. Now, I don't know if that means that, that there was like one mother church and then lots of community groups that are going on over in the villages. I don't know. Or, or if it's like a, a church planting movement and there's a bunch of small churches. Um, I don't really know, but it sure seems like there's a growing church. But then Paul is really telling Titus that there's some things he needs to address in the church. Um, you want to know what the problem was? Is that the carnality of the culture around the church was starting to ooze its way into the church. Are we ever in danger of the carnality of the culture around us working its way into our churches? Let me get a little more personal. Are we ever in danger of the carnality of the culture around us working its way into our own lives? We're all in danger of it. We feel it. It's all around us. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the world is not silent. They're very loud. Full of agenda. 
being masterminded by the prince of the power of the air. We call him Satan. Folks, um, he walks around like a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may devour. And his number one tool is really the philosophy, the mindset the, the, uh, of the world around us. As we are being attacked nonstop. And so we are in danger. It's coming at us all the time. And then we have the struggle of our own flesh. The, 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 the reason why Satan is so successful as he dangles the world in front of us is there just seems to be something in us that just kind of sometimes wants what he's offering. So we're in danger. And so this, this, one of the things that Paul is having Titus do is to, I mean, he's, a, he's appointing elders and he's, he gives some qualifications for elders in chapter number one and some talks about the, the status of things there on the island of Crete. As we come to chapter number two, there's some very specific instruction of, of man, well, we got to make sure there's instruction for the, the, the men of the church, the young men, the older men, the, the younger ladies, the older ladies. There's instruction for the working class of the day as they submit to those who, who really have rule over them. And so lots of real practical instruction. But then we come to verse number 11. We're going to be, I wanted to kind of bring you up to speed. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of plopping down right on probably one of the more familiar parts of the book of Titus. Perhaps some verses that you have heard and that you know. And we're going to be in chapter number 2 starting in verse 11. And he brings up a word that we love in the church. Folks, it's a word that I love in the church. That we use in Christianity, true Christianity, it's a beautiful word, the word grace. Folks, it's by grace that we are saved, it's by grace that we are obedient and that the church in, in, on Crete is going to be obedient. It's by grace that we are saved, but it's also by grace that we're going to be obedient to everything that Paul has talked about. So he brings up this wonderful word grace. I would love to pick up in verse number 11. He says this, we'll read down to the end of the chapter. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous of good works. Now listen to what he says as he closes this chapter and this part. He says verse 15, he's talking to Titus and he basically says, Titus, I want you to, here it is, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now let me tell you what he does. He, 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 he gives this instruction and then he gives this, this underlying power source for them to be obedient to this. And then he says, Titus, I want you to declare these things. I want you to speak these things. But not only speak these things, the word exhort is a little stronger. It's not just speak these things. I want you to, it means to call people to be obedient to these things. And then he said, if need be, Titus, if need be, rebuke and do so with authority. You have authority to do so, Titus. And then he says, let no man despise you. That word despise means don't let anybody snub their nose and say, whatever, Titus, we don't have to listen to you. Okay, that's the terminology that Paul uses at the end of this. 
I don't know about you, but it sounds, um, it sounds like this must be pretty important. But with, with, with the words that Paul gives at the end. Okay, so let me tell you what we're going to, I'm, I'm going to speak these things. I'm going to declare these things. I, I'll, I'll exhort us, myself included, to be obedient to these things. When it comes to rebuking, I'm, I, I'm in no position, I don't even, I, I know very, very few of you in this room, no position whatsoever to rebuke. But how about this? The Holy Spirit of God knows you better than you know yourself. What if he sees fit to rebuke you? Surely you can understand and recognize his authority to do so. Shall we please not snub our nose to him and say whatever? We don't have to listen to you. Folks, I just want you to know I believe that what we have here in Titus chapter 2, we desperately need in the church today in the midst of the culture in which we live. Because the culture in which we live is loud. I want us to look at this beautiful word in verse 11. The word grace. Don't you love the word grace? Man, I love the word grace. If you don't, if you don't love the word grace, then you, you, you have a big part of your, of, of your understanding of salvation that's missing. Because grace means that you couldn't earn it. It had to be earned for you and given to you for free. I mean, we love grace. I mean, we, uh, I mean throughout the history of the church, you know, we, we, we name our daughters grace, right? Or, or Karis. There you go. Um, we... we we, that's Greek for grace, in case you didn't know that. Anyway, um, we, I've preached in many of Grace Baptist churches, great Grace Bible churches. I, we love the word grace. We talk about grace. We sing about grace. When we sing about grace, we're not satisfied just to sing about grace. What do we do? We put all kinds of modifiers in front of it, don't we? The wonderful grace of Jesus. Marvelous, matchless, infinite. We just go on and on, don't we? Why do we... Why do we See, speak and sing so much of grace because we really do believe it's amazing grace how sweet the sound that would save an old wretch like me folks grace have you been saved by grace folks let me just uh, I don't know who's here today so let me just throw this out and I just want to be very very straight up because I'm really not preaching on salvation this morning I'm really preaching to those who already have salvation but if you are here today and you do not have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, by grace alone. In other words, you can't earn it. Going to church isn't enough. Getting baptized will never do it for you. Folks trying to be a good citizen, a good neighbor, trying to keep all of the rules perfectly. There's nothing you can do to earn a right relationship with God. It had to be earned for you through Jesus Christ. He lived the life we were supposed to live, but we didn't. He died the death we deserve to die in our place. And he rose triumphant from the grave to conquer sin, to conquer death, so that sinners like me and you could actually be saved. And we don't earn it. We receive it as a gift that we do not deserve. Sir, ma'am, if you have never received this gift, I want you to know something. You are in need of saving grace. And if you have questions about that, I would love to sit down with you. Pastor would love to sit down with you. Have you ever been saved by grace? Listen to verse number 11. Listen to what it says. It says, for, by, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
The grace of God has come to us through Jesus Christ. And it has brought salvation for all who will believe. Folks, salvation comes through grace. Ephesians chapter 2, it's by grace we are saved. Not of works. If we could work for it, we could boast. But it's not of works. Um, Folks, it is given to us free. It's by grace that we are saved. Now, I just want you to know, when we think of the word grace, we think probably most most fundamentally, we think of the grace that it talks about in verse number 11. And what I mean by this, we think primarily of saving grace. We think about the grace that brings salvation. Every song that I was talking about was, was first and foremost talking about the salvation that comes by grace. I quoted Ephesians 2, how the salvation comes by grace. Chapter number 2 here, verse 11, says that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. Folks, the first and most important understanding we have of grace is that it's by grace we are saved. Verse 11 is talking about saving grace. But I actually want us to spend our time today looking at verse number 12. Because there's a different aspect or understanding of grace that I think we see in verse number 12 that is so so very important for us. Verse number 12, look at what it says. It says in verse 12, it says, training us that renouncing, let me, I lost my place, hold on, training us that to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives when? In this present age. Now you say, well, I was talking about 2,000 years ago. No, 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 it's talking about This is the timeless word of God. What he was saying to the church 2,000 years ago, he's still saying to us now. In this present age, the grace of God saves us, verse 11. But then I want you to see what happens in verse 12, that it's training us, it's teaching us. So verse number 12 um, begins with a a, uh, action taking place, okay? So there's this training. Um, So who, who or what's doing the training? You have to go back into verse 11 to find out what the who or what is doing this training. And folks, there's only really one, one thing that really works in verse 11. You could say, well, it's your salvation. So the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. So it's our salvation that's training us. I mean, I, I'm, I'm theologically okay with that, but, but it's, really, it's really talking about the grace of God that saves us in verse 11. But then in verse number 12, I really want you to get this, that it's the grace of God that trains us. Now this word that's translated trains us, we find it translated lots, several different ways in the New Testament. We find it translated instructing, teaching. Listen to this use of it. We, we, we actually find this same word translated disciplining. How about this one? Maybe you know this verse. I'm going I'm to throw an old King James at you. You ready? This is in King James, I mean this is in Hebrews chapter number 12. It says this, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. The word chastening. Guess what word it is? The same word as right here is translated training. Now, folks, we got to wrestle with this. In verse number 11, grace saves us. And man, we say amen to that. But in verse number 12, the grace of God is training, teaching, instructing, disciplining, chastening. 
Now, folks, have you ever thought of discipline and chastening being a work of grace? You know, i got to be honest. In my growing up days, I had a, I had a lot of discipline that came into my life. Um, I, had a, I had a good dad. He was a great dad. My parents were great people, not perfect people, but they were great people. Loved me dearly. Very, very gentle. Um, but my dad was, uh, was, was, was very much so going to teach me what was right. And I had many times when I had, uh, had disobeyed or I'd been disrespectful to my mama that my dad lovingly took me and he let my little, my little rear end know a little something, something. You know what I'm saying? Many, many times my dad disciplined me. Never one single time after my dad had disciplined me, never one time did I get up and say, Dad, I just want to thank you for being so gracious to me. No, 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 no. If we were, if, if the word grace was going to enter into the conversation, grace, if dad showed me grace, it probably would have meant that he didn't give me the discipline. But all of a sudden here, we find that the word discipline, instructing, teaching, even though chastening, is all words that are attributed to a work of grace. Now, folks, can I tell you why this is so important? I mean, folks, this is so important for us to understand because I think we actually, in the church in the United States at large, I believe that there is a very, very, if I can use this terminology, cheeseball understanding of the word grace. You know what grace means for a whole lot of people who are at church, sitting at churches this morning? Grace means it's, I mean, it's just this big get out of hell free card. You get it when you get saved. Looks like a credit card. And you know what you can do? And it's all thanks to grace. You can just sin all you want. And you can just swipe it. Jesus will pay for it. You can just sin all you want. Free from the law. Oh, happy condition. Now sin all you want with Jesus' permission. Folks, it's a, it's a, horrible understanding of a work of grace in your life. Folks, your salvation is not some cheese ball thing that happened that now you got your get out of hell free card. Jesus is just a big fire escape, but now you can go live however you want. Please understand me, if you've really been saved by grace, hold on tight because you're also going to be changed by grace. He is not even close to being done with me and you. This is so important because uh, I think we've all met people who, um, who they, they claim one thing with their mouth, but then they live something totally different with their life. And you just look and you say, well, this just doesn't compute. You see, folks, the grace that saved you, that same grace of God is going to be at work in you, changing you. And there's so many people in our church. As a matter of fact, that Paul, uh, Paul is warning Titus about people that he was dealing with. Look at the last verse of, of chapter number one. Look at the last verse of chapter one. Look at what it says. Talking about some people who Titus is dealing with. They profess to know God. Ooh, doesn't that sound good? They profess that they know him, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Folks, I'm telling you. We have people who sit in churches just like this all the time. They claim Christianity with their mouth. Live something totally different with their life. And blame it all on grace. 
Folks, it's a horrible understanding of grace. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ didn't just come to change my final destination. He did. I was on my way to hell. At 21 years old, I got saved. Going to a state school, I was on my way to hell. Jesus Christ saved me. Now I'm on my way to heaven. He changed my final destination, but he didn't just change my final destination. Jesus Christ also came to change who I am. Jesus Christ came to make Aaron Coffey a better, a better husband. Jesus Christ came also to make, to make Aaron Coffey a growing, a little bit at a time, better and better dad. Jesus Christ saved Aaron Coffey to make me pure. I mean, matter of fact, look, he says so in verse number 14. Look at verse 14. Here's why Jesus came. Look what it says. Who, talking about Jesus, gave himself. Why? For us to redeem us. That means buy us back from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And that's not just talking about zealous once we get to heaven. That's talking about zealous now. You see, Jesus Christ came to change my final destination, yes, but he also came to change who Aaron Coffee is. And he came to change who you are. He came to change us. To do a work of grace in us. Now I want us to look at verse number 12. Because in verse number 12, he lays out for us what this change is supposed to look like. Look at what it says, verse number 12. It says, training us. So the grace of God saves us in verse 11. But then in verse number 12 is training us, teaching us, disciplining us if need be. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We'll spend a few minutes here on verse number 12 because I want us to look at those two words. I think it'd be good for us to define some terms here where it, it's telling us this is what the grace of God, it saves us in verse 11, but in verse number 12, it's training us, teaching us, even if need be, disciplining us and chastening us to do what? To be people who renounce or say no to, turn away from ungodliness and worldly desires, okay? It says right here, Worldly passions. Okay, I want to talk about these two words right here. Ungodliness and let's talk about ungodliness first. The word ungodliness. Now, you got to remember, Paul here is talking to Titus and Titus is going to be saying these things to believers. Okay? Um, that God is, he, the, the teaching is that we are to, the grace of God is teaching us to renounce or say no to ungodliness. Now, on one side, it's like, what do you mean ungodliness? I mean, we're not the ungodly. That's talking about the lost world out there. The lost world out there, they are the ungodly. Look at us at church on a Sunday morning. Obviously, we are the, the godly. I mean, look at us. We are the godly. Um, why is he telling the unbelie why is he telling the church, the believers, to renounce ungodliness? Is ungodliness something that believers struggle with? Well, let's define it, can we? The word godliness, I got saved, like I said, when I was 21 years old. Not long after I got saved, I had a man, I started going to a Baptist church right down the road from my house. I grew up going to a Baptist church when I was a kid. I kind of walked away from all of it. At 21 years old, I got saved. And I started going to, it was literally, I'd moved down to South Carolina. There was, it was the closest Baptist church I could find. And so I went down to this church, it was about a, a mile down the road from my house. And, um, and the, man, I, I had some people who started to pour into me, started to disciple me. Um, not long after I got saved, a guy gave me a definition of godliness I've never forgotten. He said, Aaron, godliness is when you live your life 
practicing the presence of God. Now, I've heard other definitions of godliness, but that one stuck with me. The word practicing, I've heard living in light of or acknowledging um, the, the presence of God as you go through life. But that word practicing, you know why it resonated with me? I grew up playing sports. You know what, for every, for every hour you play actually in an actual game, how many hours would you spend in practice? You know, we come up here and we do, we do music. You know what we do every single day? I mean every single day for an hour at least, sometimes an hour and a half to two, just depends on what we've got going on. Every single day we practice. You know why? We may have individual talent, but folks, if we don't practice, we're not going to be together. We're not going to be good. We have to practice. You want to know what the definition of godliness, it's, it's living life, practicing his presence. You know, what it, you know what that communicated to me, and it always has? That godliness is not just something that happens by accident. Folks, it's something that I have to work towards. It is me putting in the effort to draw nigh to God. He's promised he'll draw nigh to me. It's living life, practicing his presence. I, I, folks, we have a tendency to live ungodly, not practicing his presence. I, I read a book, um, I've actually read it uh, uh, at least three times because I've read it several times with my team, with my team members. It's, the, it's a book by Jerry Bridges called um, Respectable Sins. Anybody ever read Respectable Sins before? Man, it is a good book. Uh, I recommend it. It's a little bit of a spanker. Proceed with caution. Uh, here's, here's, the, here's the name of the book, Respectable Sins. Subtitle, Learning to Confront the Sins that We Tolerate. It's a book for believers. Talking about the sins that we just give ourselves a pass on. And we, we all think about the sins of those people, you know, the unbelievers. But what about the sins? There's a whole book written about the sins of believers that we just kind of say, ah, it's not that big a deal. Why are we, you know, I mean, we're not doing this and this and this. It's not that big a deal. This is a whole book of the sins of believers that we just tend to give ourselves a pass on. I mean, sins like, you know, it's a whole chapter written on worry. A whole chapter written on gossiping. A whole chapter written on pride in our hearts. A whole chapter written, uh-oh, a sin of believers, the sin of ungodliness. I remember the first time I read the book, I'm like, huh, ungodliness. I wonder how he's going to define this. Because obviously believers are the godly. Folks, he nailed my hide to the wall. His definition of ungodliness was simply living life without God. For a day? You ever had an ungodly day? You were just busy. You just got up and took off without him. We kind of want him to stick around close in case we need him. But in the meantime, I don't think I need you. I didn't, I proved it because I didn't spend any time with you. I'm making decisions without consulting you. I'm just rolling through the day. It's just a day that you spend without him. He defined it as an ungodly day. A day without God. Sure, we always know that he's watching over us. But folks, have you ever lived an ungodly afternoon? Folks, godliness is when you live life practicing his presence in your life. You know, I work with a bunch of college-age boys 
during the summertime, I run an internship in inner city Detroit, Michigan. It's an urban church planting initiative that we're doing, and these guys come in as, as interns. And, man, we do all kinds of training with them, all kinds of apologetics training. And we go down, and we're in the midst of, especially when we get down around the college campuses, and we, 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 we're training them to get into these discussions and, uh, with guys who, who would, would, would totally be atheists and learn how to help them point out the faults in their worldview and then show them what a Christian worldview would look like and, and all this stuff. And we're teaching these guys apologetics and they are so ready to go. They, and, and I meet so many people who are, man, apologetics has become such a thing. And, and man, there's so many books and it's good. I'm all for it. But we have so many who, people who are, man, they're all about, man, I'm going to learn how to, I'm going to learn how to argue truth and I'm going to learn how to debate the atheist and we're going to we're going to show those atheists how stupid their worldview is but I I meet Christians who live like practical atheists somehow have to excuse God out of the room in order to watch some of the things we watch we somehow have to in our minds believe that he's not really sitting there to view some of the things we view say some of the things we say. Folks, are we just practical atheists? In theory, we would never be atheists. But we sure live like God's not right in the room in the midst of our discussions with our spouses, our anger towards our children. We live ungodly. And the grace of God, the same grace of God that saved us, the same grace of God is at work in me. Saying, Aaron, no, 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 no. You can't live like this ungodly world lives. You've got to live your life practicing my presence. So convicting. Folks, I hope you don't think that I'm just up here talking because I got this all figured out. This is so convicting to me. What does he say next? That the grace of God that saved us, verse 11, is now teaching us, training us, even if need be, disciplining us and chastening us, that we be people who are, who are renouncing ungodliness. And here's the next one, renouncing worldly passions. The old King James word on this one was worldly lusts. Um, uh, yeah, I, I probably like the word passions better. It's the Greek word epithemia. It's a word that, that is just talking about desires. Now, they're really strong desires, but they're not necessarily bad desires because this same word was attributed to Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus, when he desired to have the Passover with his disciples, same word. So the word here that's translated passions, in and of itself is not a bad word, but it is put into a bad connotation because of the word that defines it before it. They're not just any desires. They're not just any passions. They're worldly passions. Now, all of a sudden, especially, especially if, you're, if you're looking at the King James or the New King James, when it was the word lust, it, it kind of really sounds like, well, man, I mean, surely that's not talking about the sins of we people. I mean, just listen to the, how that sounds, worldly lusts, worldly passions. Surely that's talking about those people. He's talking to believers. What are worldly passions because the grace of God is teaching us to renounce them now I grew up I grew up in a, a really really conservative church myself uh, I grew up 
uh, it was just really conservative. Uh, uh, I, I felt like as I grew up, I went to a Christian school. In the midst of the Christian school that I went to, there was lots of preaching on worldliness. I heard lots of preaching on worldliness. I mean, I felt like it was that they. I felt like it was brought up a whole lot worldliness. Now, this is what I felt like I heard. Now, I want to believe that something better than this was said. I wasn't a believer, but let me tell you. Sometimes what you feel like you remember hearing, but then what they actually said wasn't always the same thing. But I really, I really felt like that what I grew up with was my understanding of worldliness was this external thing. I mean, plain and simple. Worldliness were people whose hair looked a certain way, their, their clothes looked a certain way, you know, their, uh, uh, you know, uh, man, they, their tattoos and piercings, all, that's, th those people, I mean, worldliness. Okay, now, folks, I mean, sure, the worldliness on the, on the inside makes its way to the outside. But is that, is, is, is that what worldliness is? Is that what he's talking about here? Is worldliness an external struggle or is worldliness primarily and first and foremost an internal struggle? Worldliness is an internal thing. Let me tell you what worldliness is, okay? It's a, it's a temporal struggle. It's an affection struggle. It has to do with your affections and what you love and what you place your love upon. It's when, it's when you, your affections are so wrapped up on things that are temporal that all of a sudden you don't have any affection to spend on things that are eternal. Now I want to be real careful here, okay? Because there's not there's nothing wrong with some of the things that we spend our affections on. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. He uses the word passions. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a little raw here. I'll tell you some of my passions. They're not wrong until I love them too much. But folks, we have, we have things that we're passionate about. But here's the thing. Worldliness is when you are so caught up in the mindset of the temporal that you don't have enough bandwidth. For your affections to be consumed with things that are eternal. And with that, with that understanding, can I just tell you what that means? It means that you can be so over the top uber conservative. Dress just perfect. Like however I, 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 I was raised, I was supposed to look. You can, you can, I mean, you can play the part in every way. You can be a Sunday school teacher, a deacon. You can be a pastor. You can be an evangelist. And you actually can be overwhelmingly worldly. Because you spend your affections on things that aren't going to make it past this life. You're temporal instead of eternal. Now, let me, let me, let me help bring this down, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to move into um, a series of, of, uh, of, of ways to apply this or some illustrations to help, okay? I, I personally am a man, I mean, this word passions, I think that's a very good word to describe me. I'm a man who's, who's given to some passions. I have some things that I am very passionate about, okay? They're not bad things. I don't think I'm into a single thing that's bad. 
But folks, listen, I love football. Is there anything wrong with football? Boy, please tell me no. Until I love it too much. I love hunting and fishing. I'm a big outdoorsman. Probably of all of my passions, probably, probably hunting is the one that I grew up. Me and my dad, um, I mean, me and friends, I mean, hunting was a huge thing to me. And it still is. I go, I go every, is it wrong to hunt? I, I sure hope not. I go on a trip every year with my dad. Me and him, it's our time together. I love it. It's not a problem until I love it too much. I, uh, a few years ago, it's it crazy, I, I shot this huge buck, and, uh, and we have these really cool places that we hunt, and I, I took this one, it was so big, I took it to a taxidermist to get it mounted, and, and this taxidermist, we get to talk, and he's a believer, and he actually, he actually had heard of me before, and I just was like so floored, because it was so random the way that I found this guy and ended up, and, and, and he had heard our music before. And, and so anyway, I just, but, but he, he, he said, hey, Aaron, he said, and I promise you, he said, I, 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 please take me up on this. He said, I will, I will mount any, I'll do any taxidermy for, for you that, 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 you ever, that you ever need done. Please don't go somewhere else. Please bring it to me. He said, my biggest fear is that you won't take me up on it because you feel bad. So, okay, so like now I've brought like five different things to him, all right? Um, me and my dad, over time, we've like developed this trophy room. Man, it's like pretty awesome. Hey, can I tell you what's going to happen to our, our trophy room? Can I tell you? It's all going to burn. It means nothing in eternity. Does that mean it's wrong for me and my dad to go hunting? No. But folks, let me tell you something. I know my heart. And I know that I got to keep it in its place. My sports, my, my passions, the things that I love, I have to keep them in their place. You say, Aaron, you mean to tell me that this worldliness is talking about things like that? I mean, here's worldliness. What, did, what, did, what does 1 John chapter 2 say? All that's in the world, here it is, you ready? The lust of the eyes, that's the things that you can acquire the possessions you can acquire, the lusts of the flesh, that's the pleasures, the passions, the pastimes that you can indulge yourself in. The, the pride of life, that's the positions, the prestige, the popularity. I thought I'd throw a, a few peas out there. But folks, listen, that's all that's in the world. Things you can acquire, possessions, things you can do, pleasures, passions. Things that you can attain to when it comes to your popularity and your prestige and your positions. Folks, what else does the world have to offer? Nothing. But what does the text say about it? It's all going to pass away. That's what 1 John chapter 2 says. Everything that's in this world that you and I go after, and not even bad stuff, folks, but it's all going to pass away. That is a worldly, wasted life. Let me tell you where God brought this text of scripture home and nailed me to the wall with it. Last time we were here, uh, which was six, seven years ago, a, a good while back, um, 
there was a guy, I had a, a couple who traveled with us, Matt and Caroline Clemens. I don't know if you remember them. They had a little boy. His name was Asa. Um, we were here about the same time of the year. I think just a little bit earlier. I think it was back in October, just a little bit earlier is when we were here. And um, uh, Matt was up here on the stage singing. He and his wife, their little baby would have been in the nursery, um, little Asa. Um, they traveled with us for two and a half years. We left here, and just a couple weeks later, we split for Thanksgiving. Little did we know we'd never see Matt again. Matt had a horrible car accident, and he was gone. Just a couple weeks after the funeral, Carol Ann calls and says, Aaron, can I come back on the road and travel, me and Asa? She said, I mean, I've been with you for two and a half years. She said, I, I, I really just don't want to go home. I just I feel like I'm just going to spiral into a bad place. I want the support of the team. I want you guys around me. I, I, man, talking to a lot of people seeking counsel, we decided that, that, that to do it. And so she comes back on the road for two and a half more years. As I'm going through that next spring, that would have been the spring, that was in December of 2017. That next spring, 2018, I'm just like, I'm trying to help Carol Ann through this, this valley. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never, I'd never led, I'd never been through something this much in my life. He was 24 years old. He leaves behind a 24-year-old widow with a one-year-old one boy. And I'm trying, to, I'm trying to lead, I'm trying to help um, her through this. But the whole time I'm just saying, God, this is so painful. This is so hard. What are you trying to teach me? What are you teaching me, God? Can I tell you something about Matt? I don't know if any of the teenagers who would have been here back then, they're probably off at college and different things, but um, I don't know if any of them are in attendance today, but I'm telling you, Matt was passionate. He was a crazy dude, but he was passionate, though. God had gotten a hold of his life working at camp. He is a business major, but then he was going to go to seminary. He wanted to go into pastoral ministry. And he was passionate, though, about, about kids not wasting their life. Right as he comes on my team, he read a, read a book by John Piper called Don't Waste Your Life. And I mean, he would just, it was like a tagline to his life. I mean, he said it all the time. I, if I, I heard him say it when he preached, when he was doing counseling sessions. Just, I mean, just like, hey, man, all the time to teenagers, hey, don't waste your life, dude. Don't waste your life. Live for what matters. He said it all the time. If I heard him say it once, I heard him say it 200 times. He said it all the time. Don't waste your life. Really looking at his own life as a teenager, wasted on video games and, and, and sports. And Guys, you know what, folks, you know what God started to pound on me as I'm asking God, please help me. What are you trying to teach me through this loss? You know what God was teaching me? It just, I mean, he pounded me. Aaron Coffey, don't waste your life. Aaron Coffey, don't you waste your life. I'm starting to take everything that's in my life. I'm running it through this grid of, 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 of don't waste your life, living for what really matters. And you know what? He showed me so many areas of my life in which things that weren't bad, but they had become too important to me. Things that weren't bad, but I lived for them too much. Things that were passions, that they weren't wrong. And folks, all of a sudden, we start to love the things that are temporal. And you know what it costs us? Because you don't have but so much bandwidth. You can't love but so many things. We have to choose. My friend, we all have to choose what we're going to spend our affections on. Because you don't have but so much time, so don't waste your time. You don't have but so much money, so don't waste your money. You don't have but so much of your life. Don't waste your life. 
Folks, actually, this is what this is saying. The grace of God that saved you, the same grace of God is at work in you, teaching you and training to not live like God doesn't exist, like the world does in their ungodliness, and not to live spending your affections on worldly, temporal, earthly passions that are going to pass away. Don't waste your life. That's what the grace of God is teaching us. You know, just a little bit later that year, something, something uh, really cool happened. We got our first house. I won't go into the whole story, but we'd never had a house. You, I don't know if you came in this morning and saw our trailer out there. Uh, we, we, ever since my wife and I got married in 2005, we, uh, we, we've been living in, 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 in church parking lots in our trailer. We're connoisseurs of fine church parking lots. That's what we are. And uh, anyway, uh, 2018, later that, that spring after Matt died in, in December, um, God had just worked it out, and there was kind of some things that we thought might happen, but then it looked like it wasn't, and then all of a sudden, man, it happened, and it happened like that. We were able to get our first house. It was really a miraculous thing. It was a bit of a fixer-upper. We get this house. We didn't have anything. If it didn't fit in our trailer, we didn't own it. And so, I mean, we, like, have nothing. Um, we don't have beds. We don't have couches. We don't have chairs. We don't have anything. Now, I'd been saving money if this day ever came and ever happened, but, but we just didn't have, we didn't have anything. And so thankfully the lady left some appliances and then a, a dining room table had six chairs around it. So there was six in our family. So for two weeks we just sat around the table and looked at each other because there wasn't anything else to do. But we, 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 we go on this shopping spree. I mean like legitimate. We needed beds. We needed couches. We needed chairs. We needed stuff. We needed tables and lamps. And, and so, man, we go. I mean, I couldn't afford new stuff. I didn't want everybody's hand-me-downs that's coming at me 100 miles an hour. So, man, Facebook Marketplace, here we come. Man, we had some fun. I've never spent so much money in my life. I'm just telling you. I've just never been in a situation. And, folks, let me, you know, you know what? I mean, I, it was overwhelming. I mean, I just had never, had never felt like I was a materialistic person. Matter of fact, I probably was kind of somebody who was like, I'm not materialistic. I mean, look, we just live so simple in our dream. I mean, folks, I was very materialistic. I just didn't know it. Man, I mean, I'm seeing stuff. Man, if it's, on, if it's a good deal on Facebook Marketplace, you buy it, need it or not, right? I mean, man, I mean, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the discontentment. I'm feeling this materialism. I'm feeling, I'm like, God, whoa, you've got to help me. God, you've got to help me. My wife, she's so awesome. She's buying stuff. I mean, she's, she's not buying stuff. She's like turning our house, transforming it into a home, decorating. She's all artsy and creative. And she had this one thing that she wanted over top of our bed. She tried to make it and couldn't. And so she found this website where she could design it. And then they would print it off and then send it. Then she would fix it up. But it was going to cost X amount of money. And she comes to me. She said, Aaron, I really want this over our bed in the master bedroom. But uh, it's going to cost kind of a, more than I was hoping. And and she said, do you think we could get this? I'm like, baby, are you kidding me? You've already saved us so much money. Yes, anything you want, please get it. So it's like two weeks later. I don't even, uh, I, I didn't even, I'd forgotten about it. You know, I come in, she goes, it's here. She said, go look over our bed in the bedroom. She said, oh, it looks so good. I mean, a classic dumb husband. I don't even remember what it said, you know. So I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. So I go walking in and I stand in our doorway and I just lose it. Because I'm standing there, and here's these big letters over top, or these, this big thing over top of our bed in our master bedroom. This is what she wanted more than anything else, the one who's lived her whole life in church parking lots. And she finally gets her first house, and this is what she wants in the midst of Matt dying and in the midst of everything going on. 
And it just had in big words, not home yet. And I'm telling you, folks, God, God grabbed a hold of my heart. Because, folks, let me tell you something. That's not really home. We love that little house. It's just a little bungalow, but it's, we go home, we're going to go home for Thanksgiving, we can't wait. We, we, we love our house. It's not that big, but it is like five times the size of our trailer, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, I mean, we love our house. And it's, it's nice, and it's, 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 it's pretty, and it's great, and, but it's not home. Hey, I don't know about you folks because I don't really know you, but can I tell you something about me? I personally, I was made for somewhere better than here. I really and truthfully am just passing through this place. And folks, on my way through, it's good for the coffee family to put down some roots. It's good for us. My kids need it. It's good. It's proven to be so good. But folks, can I tell you something? I don't want my roots to go but so deep. Because, folks, can I tell you really what the grace of God is keeping forever in front of us? The work of grace that saved you, the work of grace that's changing you, the work of grace is going to keep this in front of your face. Verse number 13. This is what it's teaching us, to be people who do what? Live our lives waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Folks, the grace of God will keep forever in front of you what really matters, eternity. I actually sometimes think that I meet people, and folks, I don't want to be this way, but I think I could be if I'm not being really careful. I actually think I meet Christians sometimes who are so at home in this world. I mean, sure, we can all watch Fox News and have something to complain about. But folks, in the big picture, this American life has actually afforded us some comfort and some conveniences. And I meet people, and I think I can be this way, please, who this world has so become home. I meet people who I don't think they're actually excited about Jesus coming back. Folks, the grace of God that saved you, that same grace of God is going to be changing you and giving you a perspective that's eternal, keeping your eyes on eternity. Folks, this is what the grace of God does. Are we saved by his grace? Let me just give one really quick, since we're in New England, let me give one quick illustration about a lady from New England that I met. She, uh, she was down in Florida. Um, you know, people who live in Florida usually didn't start in Florida. And so uh, I'm at this church, and I meet this lady. She and some other ladies brought lunch to us one day, and she sat down beside me. And as soon as she started talking, she had a thick, uh, thick New England accent. And I was talking to her, and I said, you're not from Florida. She started laughing. I said, tell me your story. She said, well, I met my husband. We both were from New England. And I can't remember exactly where in New England. But anyway, she said, I mean, we get married. And um, I mean, from the time we got married, he, he just said, we're going we're gonna to move to Florida someday. We're going to get out of this cold, these cold winters. We're going to move to Florida. She said, I mean, it was forever in front of his face. I mean, like, 
He talked about it all the time. Baby, we're going to work hard. We're going to retire early. We're going to move to Florida. She said we started a business. God blessed our business. Like, we made money. She said he was so tight, he wouldn't spend a penny. She said he wouldn't do anything fun. He said, we'll have time to have fun later. Uh, she, she said he loved to fish. I mean, he loved to fish, but he wouldn't go. He would just say, no, I will, I will fish when we get to Florida. She, she said he had this boat he wanted. He would talk about this boat, talk about it. Man, he knew all about it. He had magazine articles, all this stuff. She said, finally it happened. She said, God blessed our business. We made a ton of money. We sold our business for a ton of money. She said, everything worked according to plan. We moved to Florida. She said, we came down here. We were there in Vero Beach. She said, we moved to Florida. She said, he bought that boat. It was the prettiest, it is the prettiest boat you've ever seen in your life. She said, then he got cancer. She said he died the next year. She kind of chuckled and shook her head. She said, you know what? He never got to take that boat out one single time. Folks, listen. There's nothing wrong with making plans. There's nothing wrong with moving to Florida. There's nothing wrong with any of it. Unless in the midst of it, you lose your eyes on what really matters. Do you know what you're here for? Do you know why you have blood pumping through your veins? Do you know why you have breath? Folks, I'd love for us just to take a minute and pray. I would love for us just to come to God and say, God, I don't want to waste my life. Maybe you need to take inventory of what are you spending your time on, your, your money on, your, your affections on. Well, what is the, what, is, it in, is it in order is, or is it inordinate? Are you, you know, let me just give you a little way to, to really kind of maybe think and pray. I've really thought hard. What, what is it in this life that I can actually, this is a good way to kind of think about this. And there's other things too, but let me just kind of take this. What is it in this life that I can actually touch with my hand that's going to make it past this life? I mean, I can actually touch it. I can hold on to this microphone. I mean, I can grab a hold of this, this pulpit here. Some, what can I actually touch with my hands that's going to make it past this life? I can only come up with two things. I can only come up with two things. First of all, the Bible says that heaven and earth are going to pass away, but the word of the Lord shall last forever. Now, folks, I know that it's not necessarily talking about this particular copy of God's word. But I can hold it. I can touch it. I can, I can love it because I can hold it and touch it and see it and feel it. The word of God lasts forever. That's one that I can actually touch. You know the only other thing I can come up with that actually lasts forever? People. People last forever. And I can actually touch them. They're real. Folks, please let me know if you can come up with something else that I can actually touch with my hands. That's going to make it past this life. So, folks, here we go. Just for starters, when it comes to looking at my life and deciding if I'm wasting my life, am I investing my life in the Word of God and in people? Because everything else is going to pass away. Can we just pray? I'm going to have Steph jump on the piano. I'd love just to take a minute and pray. Just come to God and say, God, help me. God, please help me. Um, can we just cry out to God? Maybe take inventory of your life. What really means the most to you?
Father, we come to you. And Lord, we pray that you'll help us to live for what matters. Lord, help us to love. Lord, the, the people that you put in, your, in our life, help us to love your word. God, would you please work. Lord, help us not to waste our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.